Uh, let's remain standing, if you will, for the reading of God's Word from first, I mean from Numbers 16, 1 through 35. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Pilath, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who he is, or who is his, and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this, take censers. Korah and all his company put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You've gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you son of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, We will not come. We will not go up. Is, the, is it a small thing that you have brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses is very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not, burnt, not harmed one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company, before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow, and let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it, and every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers, you also and Aaron each, of his, each his censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their face, faces and said, Oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with, the, with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan, 
and Abraham, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abram. And Dathan and Abram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they, they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they, all, so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up, and fire come out from the Lord, and consumed the, ten, the 250 men offering the incense. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, as you consider just how terrifying this is, uh, this scene is, the ground opened up and consumed these men. Fire rained down upon them and consumed them. Uh, I think in a modern, uh, modern world, one of the abiding images I have of something that's absolutely terrifying is the, is the video of the World Trade Center's crumbling and the smoke and the, and the ashes and, and all the debris billowing down and you see people running through the streets of New York being chased by this cloud of debris and smoke and ashes and how terrifying that is. And that's what we have today is a terrifying image. A God who in the wilderness opens the ground and makes tombs for living men. One minute they're, they're standing alive with their fires and censers and, and standing and protesting Moses' leadership and Aaron's leadership. And the next minute, they're consumed alive in the ground. This is the Lord. The same Lord who opens the tomb on the third day and brings Jesus out. This is the Lord. This is your God. This is the one who takes sinners who protest against his anointed servant, Aaron, and he puts them in the ground instantaneously. He consumes them with fire instantaneously. That is the Lord your God who brought Jesus up from the dead and out of the tomb. It's astonishing. Do you always trust the Lord or God to give you exactly what's best? Do you question why it appears that other people have really good things, uh, which in your opinion they don't deserve? Do you ever feel yourself feeling that? You see your neighbors, and they have more than you have, and you're, you're on your way to church, and you're thinking, wow, I deserve better than this. You know, I deserve more than what I have, and they don't deserve what they have. You know, see, so as you might expect, this sermon's going to go in one direction. It's be like, hey, guys. 
You guys need to stop being jealous of other people and their stuff. You know? Uh, let's all try harder to be less jealous and realize uh, that, you know, we're not any better or, you know, uh, than other people, and we need to be uh, less jealous and work hard at that. But here's a swerve. I'm going to tell you that you're not exactly wrong about your neighbor. You know, your neighbor doesn't deserve what they have. He or she has. Neither do you deserve what you have. Like, no one deserves what we get. Everything we get is mercy. Aaron was called to be a high priest. And Korah resented that. Who is this Korah? Who is this? Who is this rebel? Who is this guy? You know, very few people would consider themselves bad people, right? You know, you, you look at people next to you and you wonder, you know, I'm probably in the middle percentile, maybe in the higher percentile, but somebody's got to be the one percentile, right? Or we don't, I mean, this, this, this percentile thing is meaningless. Someone's on the bottom. Someone's the least righteous. Someone's the worst. And I want to ask you, do you have an accurate uh, estimation of who you really are? This Korah person was absolutely blind to who he was. Who he was. Uh, he, you know, and this is the playbook that Satan always uses. You know, there was no comparing righteousness in the Garden of Eden. Adam wasn't looking at Eve and saying, I'm better than you. And Eve wasn't looking at Adam and saying, I'm better than you. There were a man and a woman created by God, derivative of God, and there was God. So there was no question about who was righteous and who wasn't. God made man and woman in his image. And, we, and, we, and they worshipped him for a time. Uh, rightly acknowledging he is the righteous one that created us, breathed life into us, and we're derivative of him. That was the way it is. That's the way it is. Uh, now... Uh, well, after that, Satan brought a lie to the ears of the woman. And he believed God was, or he made her believe that God was holding something back from her. If she would eat of that tree that he forbidden her from eating and, and enjoy it, uh, and the fruit of it, she would be like God. It was envy and ambition and jealousy and desire to have what, what was withheld that was part of that original sin. And here we see it playing out over and over again. Uh, Eve took that fruit, ate it, saw it was good to eat and pleasing to the eye, and ate it, gave some to her husband who was with her, and we all died. We all died. We all became sinners at that point. We all became those who rebel against God. We're all, we're all Korah. Who is Korah? It's me. It's you. It's all of us. We are Korah, okay? We all are always overestimating our righteousness and underestimating others. Sin, uh, what's a, what, is, what is sin, right? We keep saying sin. What is sin? A modern definition of sin is, is sin is a mistrustful state of being that moves us from communion with God to alienation by means of disobedience and pride. A mistrustful state of being. It's a state of being, not just our actions, first of all, that moves us from a state to a state of communion, from a state of communion to a state of alienation from God and others by means of disobedience and pride. What's it look like? Rebellion. Rebellion focuses on reacting to the authority and his prescriptions and then bringing uh, a contest against it. Uh, as Korah, 
who is this guy? Who is this actual man, Korah? Did you know that Korah was a cousin of Moses and Aaron? Descended from Levi, right? Uh, Levi had three sons. Moses and Aaron's father was brothers with Korah's father. They were close, cousins, all the tribe of Levi, descendants of Levi. Korah was a Levite, cousin of Moses and Aaron. Because of his family connection, he might just consider, hey, like, who is Moses? Who is Aaron to get this role? Why didn't I get, why did I get passed over for this job? I want to be the high priest. I want to be the mediator. Why am I not the guy? So he stirs up a rebellion. And, and Moses and Aaron, uh, Korah, having the same grandfather. Their dads are brothers. What's their beef? <laughs> Why are they so mad? Why is Korah so mad? He doesn't like that he got... He didn't get the job that he wanted. Then you've got these Reubenites, the sense of Reuben, who are joining in with Korah's grumbling and rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Who are they? They descended from Reuben. Reuben was the first son of Jacob. He was supposed to be the leader of the covenant people. And due to his sin, he was disqualified. In Genesis 49, 3 and 4, it tells us that. But Judah became the leader. Uh, Judah's tribe became the leading tribe. And so Reuben was discontent because he seemingly was passed over. But things he didn't do. These guys, their descendants of Reuben's uh, tribe, they didn't do this. Just because of something that happened in the past, they get excluded from leadership. It doesn't make sense to them. So they go to Moses and they say, you've gone too far. They go to Aaron and say, you've gone too far. You have too much power, too much authority, too much prestige. After all, hasn't God told us we're holy? The very... The very last verses we read in this, in this book were that God's people were to take tassels and attach them to their garment and have blue cords in those tassels to show them they're the royal priesthood, the holy people of God. They're all holy. When God spoke to them the first time at, at the Mount Sinai as a group of people, he said, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people, my treasured possession. So their, their argument is sound in that Everyone is part of this. Why are you distinguished? Does God make distinctions between people? And the answer is yes, he does. He creates the office of the priesthood. Why? Because he needs to preach Christ to us. One thing that you need to read is the second, if you go back to the second page of your bulletin, the very top quote, your hardest boss in his book, Biblical Theology, has a quote that will blow your mind. You might have always thought, well, it's neat that Jesus uh, functions as a priest, as a prophet, and a king. Why is that? It says within Israel there were prophets, priests, and kings. We cannot say that these three offices were attributed to Christ in order to imitate the Old Testament institutions. So Jesus is not imitating Old Testament institutions. Those are the Aaron, the priesthood. Why is there a priesthood of Aaron? So Jesus can imitate them and him? Why? It says, but on the contrary... We must confess that such offices were established within Israel because the Messiah would occupy these three offices. God gave Aaron this job to picture Christ, who is the true high priest. So he plays, Aaron himself is not the high priest. Jesus is. He's playing a role. He's given a job to fulfill. 
He's not the true high priest. Jesus is. He's playing a part. God's a director, and he puts the actors on the stage to make the point. That's what he's doing. You know, these are pre-incarnate Pharisees. A Pharisee was someone who boasted in their own righteousness, and that's what they're doing here. They're boasting, we're all holy. Look at verse 3. We're all holy. Why are you, who are you to, to be over us is what they say there. Who are you? Uh, it says, you've gone too far, for we're all holy, every one of us, and the Lord's among them. Why are you exalted over the assembly of the Lord? Well, the problem is God does make decisions. He gives Moses the role of covenant mediator. He makes Aaron the high priest. 1,500 years after this date of this event, actual Pharisees would wage rebellion against God's true high priest, Jesus. After the resurrection of Lazarus by Jesus, the chief priests and the Pharisees gave orders to anyone who knew where Jesus was to let them know so they could arrest him and kill him. John eleven fifty seven. They want to put him to death because he was threatening their role in the temple, their role in leadership, and they want to put him down. Similar to what Korah is doing with Moses and Aaron here, instigating a rebellion. The term reactive is how rebellion and sin exhibits itself. We become like animals, impulsive, reacting against our glory being besmirched. And we seek to rectify that by asserting ourselves and bringing down others. That's what they're doing. Uh, it's a cancer wreaking havoc upon us. Cancer, if not checked, will kill us. It will damage us. Uh, we, we need this sinful desire, this desire to alienate ourselves from God and rebel against Him and to question all of His callings on others. We have to, to ask Him to help us, to, get, to, to clear this out of us. It's all, in all of us. Uh, Jesus says uh, that sin is all in us. Uh, if sin prefers this alienation from God, sin is satisfied with creation. Creation is enough. Sin does not want God. Sin wants to eliminate God. Uh, the creator can go away that I might have my position. That's what Korah really wants. He wants, to be the in, he wants to be in the room where it happens. He wants to be in the tabernacle. He wants to be closer. He's been given, according to Leviticus, I mean, in Numbers 3 and 4, a very important task of caring for and guarding the tabernacle, but he wants to be in the room. He wants Aaron's job. He wants to be in the room where it happens, where the sacrifices are made, where the censer is, is, is lit up and, and the pleasing aroma to God is made. He wants to be in the presence of God. We must not forget that Jesus says, this is who we all are. This is who we are. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. One of the most boldest, boldest phrases from the mouth of Jesus. Our eye, it can't be turned off it's, unless it's blinded. It looks and it sees, and it wants to go against God's designs. We must not forget that Jesus explains that our eyes have appetites and desires. We're not just neutral. They're not just neutral receptors of information. They go out seeking unrighteousness. They go out seeking rebellion against God. That's who we are as Korah. Sinful lives left 
unchecked, will look for sin and find sin. We will give ourselves the benefit of the doubt every time and give God rebellion every time. Even our redeemed eyes are lustful, insatiable, never satisfied, susceptible to all kinds of distractions and worship of creation. So therefore, we must pray, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is clear. That's clear sight right there. We have a Father who helps. We cannot help ourselves. We must ask the Father to help us because we all are like Korah. We'll become like him if God does not intervene. Let me tell you a story. There was a, an afternoon where a turtle was swimming along in a lake, and the turtle was nearing land, and he heard a scorpion yell at him from the side and says, Hey, uh, I'm a very poor swimmer. Can you give me a ride? Give me a lift. You're a good swimmer, turtle. Let me hop on your shell, hop on your back, and we'll go together across the lake and back. And then the turtle says, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. What kind of turtle is going to carry a scorpion across a lake? Because we all know scorpions sting. And if you stung me in the middle of the lake, I would drown. Right? So the turtle uh, thinks this is the most illogical request he's ever said. You know, the scorpion laughs at the turtle then and says, if I were to sting you, you would drown, and therefore I would drown also with you. Where's the logic in that, right? The turtle pondered this for a moment and eventually saw the logic in the scorpion's statement. He says, you're right. I'm going to give you a ride. Hop on my back. And so the scorpion climbs on board the turtle. The turtle starts paddling across the lake, halfway across the lake, the scorpion gave the turtle a big sting, and he started to drown. As they both sank into the water, the turtle turned to the scorpion with a tear in his eye and says, Scorpion, friend, why did you sting me? We're both going to drown. And the turtle, gasping for air, says, where's the logic in this? Scorpion says, it has nothing to do with logic. It's my nature. I sting. I'm a scorpion. And they both drown. Now, I tell that story. To say, we're all like the turtle. <laughs> we don't know any better. We'll believe the lies. We'll take the scorpion with us along the way. Back to amplification. The question is, you're like the turtle. You're a fool. I'm a fool. I'm like Korah. I rebel. Who is God? God is the one who sweeps away sin. That's our second point. And our, and our third point, he will consume sin. He will destroy it. Think about the turtle and scorpion there. God must sweep away sin because that's who he promises to be. He says he will remove our sins from the east to the west. He will put them on the bottom of the ocean and remove them from us. He will do this. But he must take down sin. He cannot let it dwell in him, uh, with him because he's a holy God. So once Korah began the rebellion, it was not a matter of if God would put him down, but the question of when. So what God did was when Moses prostrates himself on the floor uh, and, 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 and his face to the ground and Aaron prays and, and, and God says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a test. And the test is going to involve sensors. You're going to bring these torches and you're going to light them as priests would do and only priests were authorized to do. And you're going to stand before me in the, in the midst of the tabernacle, the place of the dwelling of God, and, and we'll see who is the actual priest. Who is God set apart and who is he not? Are you holy or not? Who is holy? That's the test. Now, 
when that happens, Moses says, uh, eventually, he gets to the point in 20, that, look, we're not going, you're, you're going to see a clear demonstration here that this is not just God's going to let these people die, but he's going to do a work of creation. He's going to do a, a miraculous work where he manipulates creation and opens up the earth. He's going to do so. So that you'll know, number one, who, the, who, who God is, and number two, it's going to vindicate we are his chosen leaders. Right? So that's what's going to happen. Sweep away his sinful rebellion. That's how he does it, and he's going to vindicate the leadership of Aaron and Moses. He's already done this, in fact, in Aaron's own children. In Leviticus 10, 1 through 2, Aaron's own children offered strange fire to the Lord in the tabernacle, and they were consumed by fire. Now we're going to see a greater and more spectacular work of judgment on unauthorized fire. Who was authorized and who was not to enter into the presence of God? Before Yahweh in the tabernacle precincts, they're going to stand, and Moses and Aaron's leadership will be vindicated. That's the plan. The next day, they're going to gather and set this up. So the rest of the story is setting it all up. He goes to all the people. He says, come on. They come on. In fact, it says they're unwilling to come out of their tents. Eventually, Moses and Aaron convince them to come out of their tents. Why does it say tents here? In, in the original language in Hebrew, the tents word, which is plural in the English, is actually singular. It's as if they've set up maybe, perhaps, a rival tabernacle. The tabernacle itself is a tent. Maybe they have a rival tabernacle, a tent, where they are demonstrating we're the authorized people here. We're the real leaders. This Moses, prince of Egypt as he was, uh, you've made yourself a prince over the people as they say. They, they mock each other throughout this whole story. You see, uh, Moses used to be the prince of Egypt. They're saying, you've made a prince of us. And that's why Moses keeps saying, I've never taken anything from these people. God gave me this calling. I am not cheating you guys. God gave me this calling to play this role. In fact, he said in the past, take it away from me. Kill me. This is too hard of a job. You don't want this job. Here he is. He's saying, I will not let God's glory be desecrated because they're calling Egypt the land flowing with milk and honey, which it was. But God says, I'm going to take you to Israel, Canaan now, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they deny that's going to happen. They will not trust God. So God's going to sweep away their sins. He's going to consume them. Though they've exalted themselves, Jesus says in Matthew 18, 4, whoever humbles himself will be exalted, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, who shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For, neither, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in, in Matthew 23. Cor and company come armed with their tassels. They come armed with their righteousness. And we'll see that only in Jesus is righteousness done. We should never consider ourselves superior to others based upon our external qualifications by our works. We see a parable that Jesus told in Luke 18 where there was a Pharisee and a tax collector. Two men came to the temple to pray in, in Luke 18. One a Pharisee, the other tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like these men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He's comparing himself to all these other people. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I've got. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to the heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, God says to us, he warns us, if we exalt ourselves, we will be humbled, but if we humble ourselves, we'll be exalted. Uh, Aaron didn't choose to be high priest. He didn't exalt himself. God chose him. Think about two other men who were chosen, James and John. In Luke 5.10, it says, James and John, sons of Zebedee, partners with Simon, Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. He chose them to be fishers of men. He chose them to be apostles. After Jesus predicts his, or tell, tells him, hey, I'm going to go and die and be crucified and on the third day rise again. They're walking along the way, and they say to him, we've got a request. He says, whatever you want. They say, grant to us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in the, in the place of glory. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm able to drink or be baptized with the baptism in which I'm baptized? They say, we're able. And so on and so forth. They have just heard Jesus is going to die for their sins and be resurrected. And they're like, hey, what position can we get? This is not unique to court. This is, this is us. We are still jockeying for, for importance in the new covenant. As you see, that's in John, uh, I mean Mark 10, uh, 35 and following. At the end of this, it says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter and James uh, and John James and John uh, were not rejected because of their sinful desire to be powerful. Uh, when his soul was troubled in Mark 14, he took him with him to the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, hey, watch for me. Pray with me. He took him along. When Jesus was being crucified, he looked at John, the same guy who said, let me have the seat at your right hand. And he said, you know what? Take care of my mother. He trusted his mother to this man. This ambitious man. Because you know what? The spirit was about to descend upon John and transform him. He was going to see the gospel with his own eyes and be changed. What exactly does Jesus want John and James to do today? There's a point in which James and John are walking with the other disciples. And a Samaritan village uh, will not receive Jesus in Luke 9. The people didn't receive him because his face was set forward to Jerusalem. And then the disciples, James and John, particularly say, Lord... Do you want to tell us to tell, or you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume those Samaritans? Jesus turned to them and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. That's in Luke 9, 56. He rebuked them. Why? They're just mimicking what the holy God who opens up the earth and rains down fire on the, on the enemies is doing, right? In Numbers 16, 34, and 35, in their zeal to call down fire from heaven upon those who reject Christ, weren't they doing the biblical thing? But God also provides the gospel, redemption for all who will flee destruction and flee to Christ who is consumed for sin. You see, a better leader needed to come than Moses or Aaron. Of course, Aaron was a type. Moses was a type. But Jesus was going to come and do the sin nature of man and the curse that rests upon him, upon the whole creation. Man had joined with Satan in rebellion against God. God enters into creation as a man, taking on, our, taking on our nature and works redemption. A better leader than Moses and Aaron, who would truly bring us into a promised land. Not just a, a land full of milk and honey, but the new heavens and new earth where God dwells. So in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. All who flee from rebellion and turn to Christ. If Korah and the rest were truly holy, 
They would not need Jesus to die for them, right? Moses couldn't take us to the land of milk and honey. Jesus had to do it. We can't just waltz into his presence. All of us are like Korah. Moses couldn't bring them in. He actually died in the wilderness, unable to do it. Aaron's going to die in a couple chapters. He couldn't bring them into the presence of God either. We're searching for Christ's blood at the end of this chapter. We've seen men and their children and their households sucked down into an open grave and buried alive. We've seen fire raining down upon rebels. And when Christ was on earth, he entered into the arena with Satan himself and, and handed him a defeat and triumphed upon him. We've seen John the Apostle uh, speaking about this in Revelation, about Christ, who after being humiliated, stripped, mocked, prays for forgiveness for his, for his captors, and dies and enters into a tomb, a true tomb, dead, on the third day, rises again. Before he returns, you see a vision of Christ in Revelation 19 on his white horse, conquering and set to conquer. He's going to see the armies of Satan languishing. And he calls out to his church to put on the armor of God, to, to, to gouge out the eye that causes you to sin, to gouge out the pride that turned to Christ, to ask the Father for help, to lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil, to be the church militant who fights against sin. The whole creation will, be, will see Christ who will redeem us from the tomb and redeem us from the rebellion that we've engaged in and joined with Satan because Satan has lost. Cornelius Van Til uh, uh, says uh, in one of his works, Defense of the Faith, he says, when redemption is accomplished, where will be the enemies? They are sealed in a soundproof exclusion chamber. Satan has lost the, stru the struggle. God is God. Sealed forth in the exclusion chamber. Judge, defeated. God is God. There will be no more enemies in that day. The question we all ought to be asking here is, let's run from this God. Or the, the, the action we ought to be asking or thinking is, let's run from him. Lest we be consumed. Lest we fall into the earth and be consumed as they were. Because we are no different than they are in our own righteousness. But clothed with the righteousness of Christ, we will stand through death and we will rise from our tomb because of Christ, the first fruits, because we are united to him through faith. We will not remain dead in our tombs. We will not be locked in the exclusion chamber with Satan. We will not be in Sheol, the land of the dead. We will be in the land of the living. We'll be in the new heaven and new earth, united around God himself in the presence of God without need of going into a tomb or into a tent with a priest or hearing from him from a Moses we will hear from his face directly we will see him we will eat with him as the apostles did in the days he walked on the earth final words here our dad our grandfather is Korah Korah is who we are descended from the sons, we are sons of Korah. But our last chapter has not been written yet. Korah's last chapter was written in number 16. He was buried with the 250 there in the wilderness. But God can change any heart from a heart of bitterness to a heart of love. It doesn't have to end like that. It doesn't have to end with 
Let's run from him and get away from his presence. It doesn't have to end like that. What's fascinating is David, many years later, 500 years later, would put the sons of Korah, the descendants of Korah, in charge of temple music. They wrote lots of psalms. If you look in one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 84, the descendants of the guys who were buried in the, in the wilderness, the guy who was buried in the wilderness, wrote these words. Listen to this. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Psalm 84.1. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for the joy to the living God. Korah's heart sang out for power and position and prestige. But the sons of Korah's hearts sing out for the presence of the living God and join him. Listen to what they say. Continuing on in 84.10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. How incredible is that parallel? They had their tent of wickedness here. And they're all brought down into the, in the earth. And they say, that's not my story. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the kingdom rather than, a, than dwelling in these tents of wickedness, my father's tents. They've rejected their own father. He who doesn't love me more than his own father is not worthy of me. He who doesn't love me more than my sins is not worthy of me. We turn from our evil, wicked, awful history and chapters before, and we turn and we walk with Christ because there's no better place to be than in his courts, even if we're the doorkeeper. We don't need the position of power because we have him. It says in verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. He bestows favor and honor on sinners like me and like you. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. You know why we're in there? Because Jesus walked uprightly. He withholds nothing to him. And Jesus, the high priest, pleads for you and me. He says, let them in. Bring them in. I've saved them. I've redeemed them. I'm going to give you that righteousness and clothe you with it so you're going to be acceptable. And you're going to be able to dwell with my Father eternally, forevermore, and be with me. That's what I desire is to eat and drink with you forever and to be with you. Sin will not bar you from this. It's atoned for. It's paid for. It's no more. It's been cast in the tomb, and I rose from the tomb, and your sins are left behind. If you believe that, you have a place with God. You have a home with God through Christ, your Lord. That is something, a person, it is better than any position of power you could have. Any, any joy of, or treasure you could have than that, that person right there, the Lord Jesus why is it better for you to be with God? He's just. You deserve to be there because of Christ. He's merciful. You're in there because of Christ's mercy. He's perfect in love. He's perfect in wrath. He consumes those who rebel. And we were consumed in Christ. Or we will be consumed one day. There's no other way. It's either in Christ or we will have to dwell in our sin, in the exclusion chamber forevermore from his presence, or be with him forevermore through the blood and righteousness of Christ, received through faith. All of us can receive that forgiveness and love of God through him. Let's take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to bless us. Heavenly Father, we pray that these words would, would ring true.